It's a parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have asked correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the side, on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and banished his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two venera and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Your instant reading. Church and you serve for about two to three years, depending on which conference you're in. 
And then at the end of that, you go up and get coordination, and you go through all the rigmarole again of going through all these different meetings and all that. And one of the questions they love to ask is, how has ministry shaped your understanding of Scripture? And there's different variations of that, but that's kind of variations of one thing that they really, really wanted to ask every single person that comes through. Because the idea is that, you know what, if you're in ministry, and in putting these things into practice, there's just stuff that you see a little differently than you would have if you had, you know, just read it and tried to put it into practice otherwise as well. And, you know, honestly, when I went through, when I went through those, those uh, meetings, I did the best I could to answer that, but I, I feel like my answer at work wasn't quite rounded off enough, wasn't big enough, if you will. But as I look back now, I've been in ministry for something like 12 years or so, uh, going on 13, and as I think back on that ministry of all those years, I think back and I go, you know what, there is one scripture that I can say my understanding has changed quite a bit. And it's this parable here today. And what I mean by change is not the fact that the meaning has changed, though. The meaning is what it is, right? It's pretty simple to understand. In fact, many of Jesus' parables, the, you know, there's a way you have to kind of interpret a little bit, you have to kind of work to kind of dig out. There's no real working to dig out what the meaning of this parable is at all. What, the reason why Jesus tells a parable here is to make it as shocking as he possibly can. Because you remember the story, right? There's a, a teacher of the law who's sort of like a Pharisee, but not quite a little differently, but basically a lawyer in today's talk that knew the you know, requirements of the, the Torah and all these different things to the T. Every single little thing, he comes to Jesus and it says that he wanted to test him. And so he asked him, you know, what is basically the teaching of your teaching? What is the group, what is the, the synopsis of the entire what God wants us to do, right? And Jesus is there and he's wondering that question. And so Jesus asks him, well, what's written in the law? He passes it back on to his teacher. The teacher answers, well, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Strength, which comes from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 5. And he goes on to quote Leviticus as well, which is interesting, but he goes, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus answers, you answer correctly, do this and you live. And you would think it would end there, but of course, the big question is, well, who's my neighbor, right? And we take this for granted as Christians that have heard this story for many, many times or many years over to in the church, but it's a legitimate question in the first century Judaism. And what I mean by that is, when you look at what Torah teaches and all that stuff, well, who's my neighbor? Is my neighbor simply my tribe and the intellects of the Israelites? For instance, we are set apart, we're different, and so God has set us to be the light of all the nations, and so we are the, you know, supposed to be this holy people. And so is my neighbor really not all these Gentiles that are doing all these horrible things? Is my neighbor really just other Israelites? Like me, or in this day, we call them just simply Jews, right? Is it just the Jews that I'm supposed to be neighborly for? Or maybe they would go a little further than that and say, well, not like the Romans, because you know they're evil, but let's go with like our fellow other kind of kin, if you will, like the Moabites or the Edomites, because you know there's some family heritage that we all kind of share in there. And so they kind of have maybe an extended version of that. So they wonder, you know, are those considered my neighbors, if you will? And then maybe, just maybe, you'd have to ask the question, what about all these other other pagan people, right? You know, as, as they were the bottom of and uh, in those days. And so the question is, of course, well, who actually is the neighbor that I have to love? And it's legitimate. And in fact, Jesus, a lot of times, his answer rebukes people. And he doesn't actually rebuke really at all in his parable that he tells in response. His parable that he tells in response, however, is shocking. And tremendously so. Because he tells that story again about a man going down to Jerusalem. 
down to Jericho. Now, going from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's actually quite a journey. You can do it in about a day, but the thing is, is that when you go down, it's basically like, imagine a mountainous kind of rocky desert, right? And it's a steep grade, right? I mean, it's a big hill going out from Jerusalem down to Jericho, you head towards the Dead Sea. And as you go, all these rocky crevices and the path is, is pretty narrow in places and things like that. And so there are all sorts of places for robbers to hide and things like that. And so when this man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, you understand that it's assumed by everybody that this is a Jewish person, because why else would they be up in Jerusalem, right? So this is assumed that that is going on. And of course, you remember the story. Three people walk by. First one's the priest, and oh, our priest is supposed to be amazing. Our priest is supposed to do all the right things. Our priest is supposed to know God's word back and forth and do everything correct. And of course, when he sees this man who's been robbed and left for dead, walks on the other side, walks right past. And then a Levite, who's kind of like a mini priest, if you will, they were one of the tribes of Israel who were set set apart to do uh, priestly things, but not all of them were like the high priestly stuff. They kind of were maybe like helpers in the temple a lot of times, helped teach the synagogues. Coming also down from Jerusalem to Jericho, same thing happens. See the man goes on the other side. And then, of course, the shocking part of the story is the Samaritan comes by. Now, Jews and Samaritans, as you know, this, did not get along very well, but to give just kind of, you can't really emphasize how strongly they did not like each other. In fact, in Luke, just in the previous chapter, chapter 9, Jesus talks about how he's resolutely going up to Jerusalem, and he needs some supplies, so he sends his disciples into the Samaritan village and to go get some supplies for their journey, and when they get there, they learn that these Jews are going up to Jerusalem, they go, nope, nope, not doing it, simply because they were Jews going up to worship in Jerusalem. And in fact, the disciples are furious about this. They come back to Jesus and they say, if you want us to call down fire from heaven, let's spite these people. And Jesus actually says the scripture rebukes them in that moment. And I guess they just carried on about the supplies because the story keeps going and Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. But Jesus himself had just been, as we would call it in today's language, you know, just been a recipient of prejudice or bigotry or whatever kind of phrase you want to put there, had just had this happen to him and his disciples from the Samaritans. And to emphasize this kind of idea is, you can imagine the Civil War era, and churches in the South, of course, uh, were pro-slavery, and they you know, would look down on people, especially dark-skinned people that would say African-Americans today, but they would just simply say probably black or something like that back then. And so they would look down on people. And so imagine a, a pastor in the Civil War days, in the South, coming up, giving a sermon, and the hero of the story is a slave who's black, right? would not have flown over at all. In fact, KKK or whoever is in town probably would have ran that past out if not homing himself, right? I mean, like, it would be unthinkable for such a thing to take place. And Jesus, in the moment, hearing the story, comes walking by, guess who it is? It's the people that just ruined his parade. You know, it's the, it's the Samaritan, the story. The whole crowd has to be shocked by this and, and just in awe of this. It says, of course, as we read that story, that only he saw the man, he went up to the man, he bandaged his wounds, poured olive oil or oil and wine as a kind of healing style, basically cleaned his wounds and put neosporin on him, if you will. Put the man on his own donkey, put him in his car, if you will, took him down to the inn, took him down to the ER, if you will, and, and took care of him. He even paid two silver coins, which were two days' wages in the yard, and gave it to the innkeeper or the, the hospital people to take care of him. And Guess what? I'm on a journey myself, and when I come back and return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you had. Of course, the story ends. Uh, hey, Jesus asked, hey, which of these was the neighbor? Right? And 
the man, the teacher of the law, can't even say Samaritan. It's, it's kind of really telling. He can't even say the word Samaritan. He simply says, the man who had mercy on him. And then Jesus says, go and be likewise. And so, of course, this parable answers that question of who, who is my neighbor? And not just who am I supposed to love, but who am I supposed to allow to love me? And of course, in Jesus' teaching, the short answer is, well, every single person on the face of this earth, right? Including, including, don't miss this, your enemy. Your despised or reviled enemy, you have to love them as well, too. And so that teaching never changed. I understood that. That's, that's still the same and all that. But what's been grown in my understanding of this is how hard this passage is to actually put into action. And here's what I mean by that. Is when you look at this, it seems pretty simple. We're supposed to go help whoever is in need. But of course, in practical action, there are a lot of different things that take place when you do so. For instance, and I look at the priest and Levi especially, and I think, you know, there's elements I always just thought, oh, they were hard hearted, they just didn't care, they walked by and just go, oh, I'm just a priest and Levi, I don't need to bow down and worry, you know, help somebody else out. But as I've kind of grown in experience of life, I mean, it's some like actual real reasons. They walked on the other side and kept going. For instance, they might have just been too busy. And what I mean by that is not just, you know, they had to get to their new Netflix show or whatever, right? I'm talking like they had something legitimately they were supposed to be doing. In fact, to be a priest and a Levite meant that only were you serving up in Jerusalem. But probably while you were there, you became ritually clean, ritually like purified, if you will, through all the different cleansings. And were probably heading back to the towns and villages and synagogues and places to go teach and to actually act on behalf of the people as a representative of God and actually lead them in their worship. And they probably had somewhere to go and some commitment to go and actually teach, get this, the word of God to the people and help them worship the divine Lord themselves. You see, sometimes why the scripture can be hard to put into action, why it's tricky, why it requires much wisdom, is sometimes when we see someone in need, we may have another commitment that also is very pressing. Yet in the story, they walk by with the Samaritan who stops. I was going to tell a story, but I'll skip it here because I know you're hot. So we'll go a few more. You'll get the expanded version some other time when we do this in the scripture a few years ago, or a few years ago. Uh, too respectable, right? It's not only too busy, but too respectable. You see, the other problem with this was that the Levites and the priests could not touch dead people. If they were, they would be ritually unclean and could not do any of the stuff that they could do and have to go back to Jerusalem to do all those things, right? And you clean it, and it's quite, quite a rigmarole and a task to do that. And so if, they, if this person's already dead, it actually reflects very badly upon them to go and do this. And it really actually damages them. It's costly to them. And not only that, but what happens is somebody sees them and misunderstands, thinks the person's actually dead, even though they know they're half dead or they're still alive. And then start spreading the rumor that they touched a dead person, and all of a sudden they lose their job, right? And they get kicked out of their communities because they disobeyed the word of the Lord. You see, sometimes it's too respectful. So not only are we just too busy sometimes, and legitimately so, like actually having the true things that we're supposed to be doing, but sometimes it's too respectable, as then we wonder about others' expectations of us. That you shouldn't be doing that. Or just a simple, well, we mean love people, but not those people, right? Not them, right? So we want our church to be welcoming to everybody, for instance, but not specifically those people that they came. Of course, Jesus' response to this, using the Samaritan and the Jew, 
it's very clear that you shouldn't be caring about others' expectations. And in fact, it probably was really odd for a Samaritan to be carrying a half-dead person on his donkey, and people probably looked at him with a query eye, wondering if he had done it himself because they were such enemies, right? I mean, he was taking on great risk even just to get the person and to bring down to the head. Yet Jesus tells us that we should love our enemies. Part of this, to be too hard. What I mean by that is, uh, when you study, in a seminary I have to do is I have to study people that literally go out to the very most marginalized people on the whole entire planet. I'm talking people like orphans in India who literally scrap through trash to just find food kind of people, right? And so, uh, and it's interesting when you, when you hear these people read their memoirs and talk to them or when they speak, they all talk about this idea of becoming overwhelmed with it all. And in fact, it's almost like our compassion is almost like a muscle and that it gets worn out after a while. At some point, you just, you got to take a recharge. And every single one of them talked about it. In order to continue ministry on for years and years of helping people, there has to be times of respite where they actually leave that situation and go somewhere and just kind of recharge. I'm not saying they go on vacation to the Bahamas or something, you know what I'm saying? These people, they don't have much money, they literally just go basically sit like at a shack somewhere kind of thing, or just go to your family. But yeah, they all describe like, it is a necessary thing, because if not, we become too hard in your compassion, you lose it. And so maybe in our steel, when we look about all the need of the world and all the people who are in need, it's really easy to get to that point of just losing compassion, because if you see it over and over and over again, never take time to just get some respite from it, just take that time and just recharge, you actually become less likely to continue to be compassionate. You have to have that reprieve, that time. Even Jesus took that to see in the scriptures. And of course the other answer is, well, you do for one person, what about all those other people in need, right? And so of course we see this all the time, especially in America, we have a very high value, everybody needs to be treated fairly, everybody needs to be treated equally, so, you know, you can't just give a cookie to one person. You gotta give cookies to everybody who shows up, right? Kind of thing. And of course, what ends up happening with that is that you end up wondering if you wonder about fair and being treated equally and all these different things, you become paralyzed because sometimes the need is too great to do anything at all. And in fact, Jesus, when he went on his healings, and oftentimes he walks into places where there's a lot of people that need healings, and he only heals one person, right? The scripture declares. And then he walks on, keeps on going. And yet, as we look at this, we can't be paralyzed by any of this. You see, we have to have the Holy Spirit's reliance in our life. We know that we're going to make mistakes when we learn from them. And the truth is, is that when we look at this, you can't just feel pity. You have to act with mercy in Jesus' teachings. We sometimes we do it wrong, right? But Jesus calls us to make those mistakes become wiser and learn from them and be paralyzed. And so as I look at these different deals and I look at how people have lived this out throughout their life, it's not easy by any means to be the good Samaritan. That's what Jesus has called us to do. And so instead of being paralyzed by the fear of being either like too busy or too hard or too disrespectable, we need to actually be people of courage. I step out willing to make mistakes, but willing to act what Jesus has told us to do. Let's pray. Lord, as we're here today, we love your scripture and how God, you challenge us in so many ways, and Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, every single one of us in this room is going to challenge here today. 
We feel this, Lord, as we look at that teaching, we understand we're supposed to love every single person we come across. Yet sometimes the need is so great. Sometimes we wonder how we help people. Sometimes people act like they're half dead when all they have is a paper scratch. And we have to wonder what we set aside to do to help them. As we hear God today, we know that we failed in so many ways to love in this. Each of us are capable, but God, through your grace and your mercy, you offer us forgiveness here today. You offer us another opportunity to come to your table. You are renewed and refreshed. You give us strength to go out and to continue to do the